Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Hattie Williams, News Reporter, Madeline Davies, Deputy News and Features Editor, and Tim Wyatt, our Digital Editor. Coming up on today's podcast, we talk about the primates meeting next week in Canterbury, how a school in the shadow of Grenfell Tower has coped since the fire. We also talk about the EU's migrant pact with Libya, and Tim speaks to the American writer Greg Garrett on why zombie stories are taking over the world. Don't forget that you can subscribe to The Church Times for just £5 for five print and digital issues at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. And if you've just started ordination training in the UK or the diocese in Europe, you can claim a free, no-strings-attached subscription. First, we report in this week's paper that next week's primates meeting in Canterbury is likely to impose the same quote-unquote consequences for the Scottish Episcopal Church for endorsing same-sex marriage as those set out for the Episcopal Church in the United States last year. Tim, you've been, you've been hearing some things about next week's primates meeting. What we reported this week is that the Scottish Episcopal Church, as you said, is very likely to have uh, the sanctions, what Lambeth Palace likes to refer to as consequences, um, imposed upon it for endorsing same-sex marriage, which the American Episcopal Church had uh, at the last meeting in January 2016. So these uh, consequences are um, uh, that the church will not be allowed to take part in decision-making on doctrine or polity for three years. Um, uh, They will also be prohibited from representing Anglican Communion at ecumenical or interfaith talks other organizations nor can they any uh, delegate from the church sit on the standing committee of the anglican consultative council and are there some signs that this might not be altogether straightforward yes it's it's, you have to dig a bit beneath the headlines to find out what's really going to happen on this one Uh, the primates meeting as itself has no kind of automatic authority over the rest of the anglican communion so what they're really doing is they're asking the archbishop of canterbury to exercise his authority um, in some areas that's straightforward, so for example, some positions uh, where uh, Scottish Episcopalians represent the communion on, on international bodies are uh, appointed by the Archbishop, um, so that so he, so he can unappoint them very straightforwardly. But for example, there is a Scottish delegate on the standing committee, but um, we understand that under British charity law, the Archbishop is unable to remove, remove that person um, and so no, no change can take to the personnel on the standing committee until the next elections, which don't take place until 2019. Um, so uh, as some people have said, you know, these consequences didn't have much teeth with regard to the Americans. I think there's legitimate discussion about how much day-to-day change this will actually mean for the Scots as well. There's a lot of talk about who's going to attend the primates meeting and who isn't. We know of some primates who are definitely not going to attend. Um, which primates are those and why are they not attending? So the primates uh, from the Anglican churches in Nigeria, Uganda and Rwanda have announced that they will be boycotting the meeting. The reason for that is that they refuse to engage with the Episcopal Church in the United States um, since its decision to endorse same-sex marriage. Uh, they believe um, that the consequences, uh, the punishments, the sanctions, whatever word you want to use, agreed upon at last uh, year's meeting either haven't been carried out or weren't stringent enough in the first place. And then there are further three other archbishops um, from Myanmar, Central America and uh, Tanzania who aren't able to attend, but for other unrelated reasons. 
health, uh, travel problems, that kind of stuff. It's interesting to note that the General Secretary of the Anglican Communion, Dr. Josiah Idowofiran, um, said recently that there was a need to have a discussion about the moral weight of the resolutions that are made by the instruments of the Anglican Communion, including the Lambeth Conference. So I think drawing attention in his recent speech um, to the fact that there is now um, disagreement um, about the weight of things such as the consequences, you know, whether they have to be implemented or whether they're a recommendation. And I think that will apply to whatever emerges from this year's meeting as well. It's interesting to note that a lot of the, those who are um, unhappy with what the last year's primates meeting agreed upon often hark back to what Archbishop Donald Coggan said when he first established the primates meeting, which I believe was back in the 1970s or 80s. And it was primarily to be uh, brother archbishops meeting together to share kind of godly counsel and wisdom. Um, they always have a kind of retreat section. Um, it's not really a kind of council or... or um, cabinet meeting of the Anglican Communion, although, you know, others dispute what, what weight, as Madeline says, can be held upon what they agree. Of course, there'll be 16 primates attending this meeting who weren't at the gathering in January 2016. So there's going to be presumably quite a lot of getting to know and sort of establishing common ground and rapport. Yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, they completely changed the dynamic. It's a, you know, one primate, one vote. Justin Weber doesn't have any casting vote here, so 16 out of a total of 33 is quite a significant change from last year. We're not sure where they stand on various issues, um, and also, as you say, quite simply, they, a lot of them won't have met each other before, so um, the first part of the Monday next week will be spent on a kind of induction, getting to know you, a bit of retreat, and then the rest of Monday and Tuesday will be spent discussing these internal issues. Uh, very likely, uh, we understand it's basically a formality. They'll agree to impose these same consequences on the Scottish Episcopal Church. They'll also look quite in detail at the build-up to the next Lambeth Conference in 2020. And then from Wednesday to Friday, the rest of the meeting will be spent kind of looking outwards and discussing issues of concern like climate change and particularly religious, religious persecution, which is a, a priority for many of the other members and provinces in the Communion. These sanctions for the Scottish Episcopal Church, do you, will this come as a surprise for the new Primus? No, not at all. Um, when you look back at the debates that led up to the Scottish Episcopal Church agreeing same-sex marriage, um, uh, he was the primus, the then primus, uh, David Chillingworth, was quite open that he had spoken to Justin Welby and had ascertained that, um, yes, it was very likely that th they would suffer the same consequences as the Americans did. That didn't deter them. They knew this was coming. Um, the new primus will be there uh, next week. Um, just as the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church was in January. Um, so, you know, I, I've read stuff from the previous primus saying that he hopes, you know, to, to mo be able to model the same graciousness that Michael Curry, the American presiding bishop, showed when his church was being sanctioned uh, in January last year. Next. The Grenfell Tower fire forced the closure of a school that sits in its shadow. This week, Hattie has been reporting on what happened when a school nearby stepped in to help. Hattie, could you tell us more? Sure. So I spoke to the headmaster of Burlington Danes Academy, which is in White City, very close to um, where the fire happened. I spoke to him in uh, July, just before schools broke up for the summer, just to get an idea of what was going on. And he told me that um, the school, uh, which sits directly under uh, the tower, so we're talking, you know, 100 metres away, uh, Kensington Aldridge Academy, 
um, he was saying that the school had to um, naturally close immediately and indefinitely. In fact, it is, it is actually still closed today. And he was discussing sort of what he could do uh, to help and what he was doing uh, to obviously accommodate those uh, students. So what's he done? Has he taken students in? Essentially, yes. So um, Kensington Aldridge is actually um, uh, quite a new academy, so it didn't have, um, it wasn't at full capacity. Uh, so in that way, it was uh, quite fortunate, really, that Mr Ribton was able to uh, accommodate those students. Um, and he, in, in turn, was uh, quite fortunate in that his school uh, has a primary school, which, again, is not yet at full capacity. Therefore, he had classroom space um, and also um, other areas in the school which could be used. Um, and it's quite extraordinary, actually, the lengths uh, that he went to um, from that very first morning uh, when the phone was ringing off the hook with parents and, and indeed, uh, the headmaster of uh, Kensington Aldred, uh, uh making sure that he uh, knew about the fire and, and what could be done. And, in fact, in the, in the very first uh, instance... Uh, said that he would accommodate uh, A-level math students who actually had an exam at 9am that morning mm-hmm. and uh, you know within you know between the few hours of 6am and, and, and 9 he had uh, um, made sure that those students many of whom were still in their pajamas sort of you know uh, a harrowing uh, night for them exhausted uh, and they were able actually to to take their exam uh, that morning uh, in the school. It's quite interesting I think we've seen over the series of terror attacks over the, over the last six, nine months, at each time actually the Church of England actually had a really prominent presence. The Bishop of Kensington, Graham Tomlin, has obviously been really active after Grenfell. This is another example of a Church of England school really stepping up and, and showing what kind of service to the community means. Absolutely, and, and he was saying that, you know, ordinarily uh, uh, for a school to accommodate students uh, to take an exam is, is a very rare thing and it's quite a big ask. Um, but as he said, it was extraordinary circumstances and, and you know, what, a situation in which he was very, very happy to, to help. What did he say to you about how the community is coping now and a few months after this tragedy? So I spoke to him in, in July, so at that time it was, it was still uh, very near to the fire. Um, and a lot of the students and, and teachers um, obviously uh, perhaps recognised some of the victims who were being identified at that time, uh, also uh, many, many more who were still missing. And as we know now, um, the coroner has actually identified at least uh, 66 people, and that includes um, all of the children who were listed by police as missing. Do we think there's going to be a lasting problem for children who've experienced this in terms of trauma, PTSD? Did he talk about any kind of the psychological scars? He did, um, but also, I mean, it was interesting to note that a lot of the parents as well, uh, as well as the children, um, were deeply affected by this, um, obviously. Uh, but um, I remember when I visited the scene of the fire, um, uh, the day after, in fact, um, you know, many parents then were sort of expressing concern that their children were really quite quite traumatised by the sight of this sort of shell and it was quite striking actually even on the tube um, going there you could see through the windows and it's very very close to the tube and this enormous blackened shell um, and I can imagine you know even for me really it was quite quite harrowing but uh, for children sort of looking out of the mm-hmm. classroom windows you know uh, primary school children in, in particular perhaps um, may have some uh, ongoing effects but and that's, it was interesting from the headmaster saying that that overrode uh, a lot of the kind of political um, anger that was coming out of the fire afterwards. So he was saying that parents were actually still in shock and the political side of things was not really a factor at that time. Um, and obviously there's been a lot of anger since. Um, 
particularly from the residents of, of the tower who survived, but um, perhaps not so much from the parents. Hattie's article is part of this week's education special, which also includes articles on Christian universities, the new GCSE grades and, and much else besides. Madeline has written an extended news feature in this week's paper about Libya's control of the flow of African migrants and, and concerns about powers that the EU has been giving to Libya to police the central Mediterranean route to Europe's shores. Madeline, could you tell us more? Yeah, so I started looking into this story after I saw um, reports from the UN um, about detention centres in Libya. Many migrants are detained uh, in these centres um, in the country and there are some really terrible reports of conditions there, what happens to people who are locked up in them. Um, so I approached the, um, the priest in charge of the Anglican Church in Tripoli, um, the Reverend Vincent Rajan, um, just to find out how much his church really had to do with migrants. And um, he then revealed that actually 80% of the congregation there is made up of la- largely Nigerian um, illegal immigrants to Libya um, who might only be there for a few days before trying to cross the Mediterranean to reach Europe. Um, and he said that he was conscious of these terrible conditions in detention centres Um, but also sort of the difficult position that he's in because he was stressing that he never encouraged people to try and make the journey across the Mediterranean but many were in very desperate circumstances they had come with no passport or papers they can't work at the same time if they're found um, by militia on the streets um, they can find themselves in these um, awful circumstances in detention centres so very difficult situation for him and uh, sort of part of his job is praying with people. You report that there are many NGOs who are worried about the powers the EU is giving to Libya to, to police the central Mediterranean route. Yes, there was a decision um, taken this year by the EU Commission um, to um, really strengthen the hand of Libya in in sort of curbing the numbers crossing what's known as the central Mediterranean route, which is generally... Um, Libya across to Italy Um, and the idea was to um, train and support the Libyan Coast Guard and border control to try and sort of stem that tide of people. Um, I think what the UN is saying and also many NGOs who've signed a letter of concern is that the conditions and the way in which Libya treats migrants, um, including those which it might detain on the Mediterranean, um, should really give the EU concern about what this pact might entail. And some Christian figures, I know you quote the, uh, the bishop in Egypt and North Africa, Dr Munir Anis, who says that the, the key driver for this migration is simply people trying to better themselves and find better jobs. And if the EU wants to stop that, the best thing to do is to invest in Africa and build up more job opportunities there. Yeah, so um, I know Germany in particular, Angela Merkel, um, I think um, at a recent meeting um, of the Commission did talk a lot about um, EU investment in Africa and in trying to improve conditions. So in a sense that is happening. Um, But I think he makes a very good point that um, really kind of just focusing on stemming the problem without addressing the roots of why people are fleeing um, is is probably not the best approach. Um, And there are many reasons why people are coming to the shores of Libya. much of the time it's economic, so people are leaving countries where there's very high unemployment um, or poverty and they believe that there are better opportunities um, in Northern Africa or Europe or they might be um, fleeing conscription in countries like Eritrea um, or um, conflict. 
And I thought it was very interesting that Dr. Anise also made the point that um, we need to think about where the countries that are in conflict are getting their arms and whether that's actually um, related to us, for example, the conflict in Yemen. You know, the UK is supplying arms as well as aid to support people in, in the Yemen. And I know sort of charities like Oxfam, for example, have actually taken the government to um, legal review. They've challenged them in the courts about... Um, the fact that we're supplying the weapons which are causing um, sort of so much harm in Yemen and then trying to solve that harm by funneling money through DFID. Um, so it also fits into that whole question of conflict and the UK's role in, um, in addressing that. And something that ties into the broader refugee crisis coming from the Middle East is, that, is this idea of there aren't enough legal, safe, humanitarian routes for people to seek refuge. Um, so people are forced into relying on the kind of dangerous... Um, gangs, people smugglers, the dangerous sea crossings. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps more effort needs to be made in providing, giving people confidence that if they go and register with the UNHCR, they might actually have a real chance of being resettled uh, or finding a new life in a place of safety. Yeah, so um, I think one of the points that's made at the very end of the article is that only 6% of the number of people which the UN suggests are in need of resettlement were given offers last year. Um, so I think sort of people take these very desperate routes because there aren't um, more sort of legitimate approved ways of, of coming to Europe. Um, and I think sort of throughout the refugee crisis, we've seen that it's been sort of neighbouring countries, um, particularly in the Middle East, like Lebanon and Jordan, um, who've taken hundreds of thousands um, of people in. And when um, European countries have been asked to take a quota of people, um, with a few exceptions, um, there's been sort of little willingness to take people through those legal routes. Greg Garrett, the American novelist, cultural theologian, academic and lay preacher, has unpicked the spirituality behind the Matrix series, superheroes and Harry Potter. His latest book looks at the zombie genre in films, TV, books and more. I sat down with him at last month's Greenbelt Festival, where he was speaking, to hear why he thinks zombie apocalypse stories have become so popular, and what that says about society and faith. Towards the end of our conversation, a very bass-heavy sound check began at the Greenbelt Big Top, so sorry if that's distracting. Great, so thanks for joining us, um, Greg. Could you just tell us briefly who you are and uh, what the book's um, kind of main thrust is about? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tim. Uh, This book is uh, called Living with the Living Dead, The Wisdom of the Zombie Apocalypse. And it is a book about one of the most uh, prominent narratives in contemporary culture, the, the story of the zombie apocalypse, which is a story about undead creatures kind of swarming across the planet and turning uh, regular humans into beings like themselves. And it's a story about um, the sort of incredible threat that we seem to feel at the moment, where it feels like hordes of dangers are coming at us from every direction. And so we see this story in really popular TV shows like Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. Uh, We see it in computer and console games. We see it in novels and short stories. We see it in comics and apps. And often I notice when I'm uh, driving through a parking lot back in the States, uh, I see it in the form of zombie family figures on the back of a sport utility vehicle. So it's it's one of those sorts of uh, stories that has permeated uh, almost every part of the culture. And for me, as both a theologian and a cultural critic, whenever a story achieves that kind of currency, I want to figure out what it is that is drawing so many people in its direction. What sorts of meanings are people being uh, offered from these stories? Uh, Why is it that uh, these stories have become so important? And that 
Uh, not because I have any sort of incredible fan investment in the zombie apocalypse, but because I really wanted to figure it out for my son, who is a huge fan, and then, as I was saying in my session at Greenbelt, for a lot of people who simply don't get the zombie apocalypse, so that they could have some sense of why this is a story with so much cultural relevance. The key idea that I guess you sketched out is that it's a... Um zombie stories gain currency, they gain popularity at times of turmoil, times of stress, of fear. What, what is it that prompted this kind of latest generation and wave of zombie stories? Well, you can sort of see it in two ways in contemporary culture. The first zombie story that we would recognize as a zombie apocalypse story is uh, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which came out in 1968. And uh, as I've mentioned in the book and in the talking that I've done about this book, uh, 1968 is this year in American history where you've got the assassinations of two incredibly popular public figures, you've got uh, an election, you've got political unrest, you've got an unpopular war, you've got changes in sexual and cultural and religious mores. Um, it's, it's one of those times where it looks like everything is falling apart. And what George Romero did in 1968, consciously or unconsciously, was to take some stories and kind of twine them together and create this idea about uh, zombies, undead creatures overrunning the world. Whether or not we think of George Romero as a, a prophet or uh, just as somebody who was making a movie on the cheap and doing it really well, uh, he understood the feelings that were going on around him and he created this story that's kind of our ground zero for the zombie apocalypse. And then more recently, the zombie apocalypse kind of re-emerges into uh, the spotlight following 9-11. Uh, 28 Days Later was released a couple of months after the Twin Towers fell, and the sort of pace of the, the zombie apocalypse has sort of increased geometrically in the years since then, because of course international terrorism is still an issue that we wake up every morning and we go, no, oh, this happened in this place, and this happened in this place, and sometimes it happens in our place. Um, and uh, so that's one of the threats that we face, but uh, it is easier than ever for uh, disease to travel from some bizarrely remote part of the world to the middle of London. Um, there is uh, political unrest in many countries, uh, cultural shifts and changes. And um, so it feels like in the same sort of way that 1968 was a flashpoint that uh, post 9-11, we've got all these different menaces that the zombie apocalypse can help us reckon with in some way. Uh, and again, it's not a conscious thing. I'm not thinking that the people of, who made 28 Days Later realized that 9-11 was gonna happen, but they realized that they lived in this world full of tension and ferment. Mm. And uh, so the, the movie that they made turned out to be one that, as it often happens, was sort of perfectly matched to the times. Do you think that people love apocalyptic stories like this because we're fundamentally pessimistic people? Because we think the world is coming to an end? I think that there are some people who are drawn to it for that reason because it reflects the way that they see the world. Um, I know plenty of people who say, oh, this is the times we live in, they're so awful. And of course, what this book has given me some perspective on is that at all of these times in history, in the West at least, when people were saying, oh, this world is so awful. First, it didn't end. And second, there were these artistic and literary responses where death or corpses or capital D death embodied 
um, were ways that people sort of dealt with their fears and tensions. Um, and so I think that that is, it, it's almost a chicken and egg sort of thing because you've got the artists who are launching these kinds of stories and images out there in these times. And you've also got people who consume these kinds of stories because it reflects for them the sense that, ah, oh, things are really going badly. And I see this story where things are going badly. So if you're a fan of The Walking Dead, for example, I mean, um, in this last season, it really felt to me like things cannot possibly be any worse in this world. Um, and that is a feeling that you can apply to the world we live in, it can apply to the fictional world that Rick and Michonne and Daryl and the characters in The Walking Dead live in. Um, but the other thing about the apocalyptic is, you know, this is a kind of literature that goes back for literally thousands of years. And uh, as I talked about at Greenbelt yesterday, there is also this strain in the zombie apocalypse where it's possible that this is um, a turn in the history of the cosmos toward something better. And, you know, maybe it's not good if you get eaten by a zombie. You cannot say that you're having a good apocalypse in that case. <laughs> but, you know, there are, are individuals who have been transformed by the crisis. And often what happens in apocalyptic literature is this idea of faithfulness. Uh, if you stay true to the values that are important or to the community, the sacred community, you will come out on the other side of this apocalypse redeemed, uh, re, I don't know, even rewritten in a sense. And so there's that part of the apocalyptic story that I think appeals to other people. That um, the world is always ending, but it's entirely possible that if there is a benevolent spirit at the heart of it, if there's order in this cosmos, that it's not for no reason. Do you think the spirituality behind some of the zombie apocalypse stories is also a commentary on our own undeadness, our own sinfulness, if you like? I think it can be, because there is a very powerful sense in many of the zombie stories where implicit comparisons get made between these zombie monsters and human beings and human existence. And uh, so in a film like Shaun of the Dead, for example, uh, or in uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, uh, or in any number of other zombie stories, there is a, a correspondence made between our sort of lowest common denominator as human beings. And it's entirely possible that you can be self-centered, uh, consumer, living without any sort of sense of mindfulness uh, or awareness of the necessity of connecting with others and living for something larger than yourself. Uh, zombies in many of these stories kind of reflect the very worst traits of human beings. So uh, we talked in my session yesterday about how the zombie apocalypse is, is a story in which all of the underpinnings of civilization get taken away. And so if we think of those as maybe guardrails on a highway, you know, because of civilization, we've got the guardrails of church and society and law. And, you know, we may bounce around a little bit, we may change lanes, but we're not allowed to drive off into the ditch and we don't take other people with us. But in many of these stories, we see people behaving at their absolute worst. And so there is that moral and ethical lesson that we're asked to apply back to our lives. Um, are you living mindfully? Are you living for more than your own pleasure or consumption? Um, and in many of these stories, in addition to the characters who are living at that sort of base level, the very worst that human beings are capable of, there are, are characters who live at the higher level, the, the very best that 
we are capable of. And, and the contrast between us and zombies really comes from the ways in those stories in which human beings are capable of things that zombies will never be capable of. Uh, and it's not just things like reflection or moderation, uh, even though those are powerful spiritual values, but uh, a zombie will never sacrifice itself. Uh, for a member of its community. Uh, a zombie will never give thanks for its existence. I mean, uh, there are so many different ways that the negative comparison um, and those positive comparisons, how we're alike and how we're different, can help to, to sort of lend real spiritual lenses uh, to the lives that we lead. And that's, I think, one of the most important things about these stories, because as fantastic as they are, we are able to see ourselves and in some way reflected hmm. in them. You talked about earlier about how often in these kind of apocalyptic stories we see the best of humanity rising to the challenge, um, sacrificing themselves for the greater good. Do you think in some sense people write these stories because they are dissatisfied with how people are actually rising to the challenges of our present day? Or no, not rising to the challenges? I, I think that there is an element of that. Um, I just came from my uh, youth session on Harry Potter and we were talking about heroism and uh, the difference between celebrity and heroism and uh, the way in the Gospel of John we are called to love radically, to give ourselves and all that we are and all that we have on the behalf of others. And so if you're a person who believes in that model, and that is the model of heroism that's been presented for us really as far back as we have written literature, and although there are stories in which heroes don't emerge, because um, we talked uh, yesterday about how in some of these stories, you know, the end result of the zombie apocalypse is despair, it's entropy, it's the end of all that is. Um, we are more naturally drawn toward those stories which are about human beings behaving well mm -hmm. and about the idea that transformation and redemption are possible. You mentioned in your talk at Greenbook yesterday how that you describe some of your work as laying breadcrumbs back to the tradition. Um, do, you, do you see or do you hope that your kind of cultural commentary through things like the zombie apocalypse or Harry Potter or whatever it is, is going to push people to start to think deeper and maybe even find something of God behind these stories? Well, I think that there are two different audiences that I'm offering these readings for. And uh, so here at Greenbelt, where we are right now, um, that is largely an audience which has some familiarity with our tradition and a love for those stories and those images. And so one of the things that happens is, well actually there are two things that happen there. Um, these stories often offer them an opportunity to see those things in a fresh new way and sort of revivify the way they think about their faith. Um, so to think about that uh, commandment from the Gospel of John, which has been sort of one of my central texts this weekend. Um, I love those verses, you know, and it's so important that Jesus repeats it over and over again in John. But because I'm so familiar with the way that story is told, I, I tend to take it for granted. And so when I see that love reflected for a community in Harry Potter or in The Walking Dead or in Game of Thrones, it is a way of revitalizing my faith because I'm hearing those old stories in a new way. Mm. And then a second thing that I think happens for people of faith, and I've heard this from a number of people here at Greenbelt, is that there is a, a utility to having some conversance with these stories because these are the stories that are being consumed in the larger culture. And these are the stories 
not necessarily our stories, but these are the stories that people know um, and that when they think about these sort of values uh, or images. Um, so you may not know Lazarus, uh, except in a very sort of remote way. In the 20-some years that I've been a college teacher, I have noticed like this incredible uh, biblical illiteracy you know, just sort of building year by year by year as more and more people are what you know, we think of as unchurched. But maybe they don't know the story of Lazarus, but you can tell them the story of Jon Snow. <laughs> and uh, you can find a way to connect it in some way with other stories. Or the, the story of Jon Snow and Jesus. Or the story of Harry Potter and Jesus. Um, and so that concept of resurrection which can be sort of spotty for them when they think about it as a religious concept, has real absolute value for them because they know stories about it. Mm. And it's, it's a way not just to, to make connections back to the faith, but also to have conversation with people where they are in the stories that they know. Mm. So I think for people of faith, those are the things that are actually kind of at work here. When you, you have a working knowledge of the, the themes and stories in culture and literature. And then I think for the people outside of the tradition, as I was saying yesterday, if every person is a spiritual being, which I fervently believe, then it is a way of helping them to be conscious about their need for beauty and their need for truth and their need for community. And these stories are places where they are in some way satisfying this need. But by making them conscious of these needs, it is helping them to be conscious in such a way that they can seek them consciously, not just sort of receive them accidentally mm. in the things that they read or the things that they watch or the things that they play. And so if you are able to highlight for them, oh, what I really love about this story is that a community formed and it held these people accountable and because of this community it helped them change into the people they're called to be. And I want that too. Now, what will that community look like for me? You know, my hope, of course, is that it's going to be, in some sense, a community of faith. But it may be a community of justice. You know, it probably won't be. It may be a bowling league. <laughs> but to make people conscious of their spirituality um, when many people are not conscious of it, I think is a, a real value of these stories and a, a reading of them. You said as well that you realized when you were kind of deep in the research for this book on zombies, spending a lot of time watching zombie films, reading zombie comic books, that kind of thing, you realized actually some of this was perhaps not, not good for your soul. Do you think Christians should be wary of consuming too much popular culture which has kind of dark themes like this? Yeah, and I talked yesterday about the importance of individual discernment. Um, for me, the violence in these stories and the sort of visceral nature of the violence because of course what zombies like to do is sort of tear you limb from limb and bring your intestines out into the larger world for everyone to see. Um, and those by the way are the same sorts of things that my son glories in uh, because when you have not lived enough yet to know how many things there are to be afraid of in the world, roller coasters and evisceration all feel like really exciting things, you know? Um, and for me now neither of those really is at the top of my list. So it is, I think, something to be aware of, and as a parent or grandparent, also be aware of what uh, the people for whom you have charge are, are consuming. 
Um, and part of that may just be to have actual conversations about it. Um, I'm also leery, though, of the idea that you should absolutely avoid something because I know that many of the things that I've found difficult and disturbing have also been really powerful for me. You mentioned earlier that you, were, um, you, were not, you weren't previously a kind of a super fanboy about the zombie genre, but I imagine you've read more than most now in the research for this book. Just lastly, if we're in the zombie apocalypse, what's your, what's your top tip? How do we survive? <laughs> yeah, and I was mentioning that I came straight to Greenbelt from the Edinburgh Festival of Books where I did a, a youth program on the zombie apocalypse and their questions were largely these sort of pragmatic, you know, um, what would you do first? Uh, and then they were also these sort of impossible ethical dilemmas. Uh, if there is a zombie and it's going to eat one of the members of your family, which member of the family <laughs> would you prefer? Um, and so I, I feel that as fun as these questions are, I really am a terrible expert on the zombie <laughs> apocalypse. but. I have spent more time reflecting on this than most, and so for those of you that are worried or putting your list together, you know, in addition to getting your bug out bag together, you know, and having it in the back of your, your car, in the boot or whatever, um, I think one of the clearest lessons from these stories of the zombie apocalypse is the necessity of community. And of course that's a, a primal spiritual value as well, but it's, it's practical in the sense that um, you don't have to remain awake around the clock and you've got an additional set of hands or sets of hands. But it's also spiritual because if you are gonna live through this difficult time, you're gonna need a group of people who will love you and affirm you and challenge you and try and hold you to your best behavior. And um, one of the tropes that we find in lots of these stories, whether it's Shaun of the Dead or The Walking Dead, is that there is a difference between surviving and living. And I think if you're actually going to live in a world full of threat and fear, you need to be reminded of what's worth living for. You've got to have a community who loves you and will push you. Which parts of the paper caught people's attention this week? Hattie? I just want to draw readers' attention to the caption competition this week. Um... Uh, so as many of you will know that uh, the Reverend Richard Coles has been uh, performing in Strictly Come Dancing for the past couple of weeks. Um, so if you want to have a go at uh, writing our uh, caption for our competition, um, have a look on page 17 of the paper or on our website. I quite enjoyed reading a book review uh, in our book section, obviously. Um, it's by uh, the very Reverend Dr John Arnold, who's a former Dean of Durham, looking at a new book by Peter Marshall, historian which is called 1517 Martin Luther and the invention of the reformation um, in just a few weeks time on the 31st of October it will be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's very famous iconic moment when he walked up to the door of the church in Wittenberg uh, and nailed 95 theses to the door which began the reformation or did he um, so I guess this, this is a new historical approach looking at um, the evidence for this event. Did it really take place? Um, how did it happen? What really happened? Why has this story gone down in history? Um, sounds like a fascinating book I'm looking forward to try and get my hands on. I was really struck by a letter um, from uh, Monica Ditmus, um, who writes from a care home in Hampshire. Um, and she writes that she's 93 um, and that she's probably not alone among our readers in spending Sunday morning alone. And that she, what she describes as a serious deprivation is not being able to receive the sacrament. Um, and she tells a story of how um, 
a dean in South Africa during apartheid um, managed to um, managed to get around this problem um, while being kept in solitary confinement. Um, I'll let our, our readers um, find out what that was, but she writes as an example um, of how to receive the Eucharist and how she feels that God does accept um, this approach. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.